0: Well, friends, I wonder this morning, if you ever question what God is doing. Do you ever question what God is doing or if he even knows what he's doing? And maybe in your life, you look around and you see things are an utter mess and you wonder, God, what is going on here? You know, Maybe you look at the world around us and the culture that demands our conformity, yet is always changing its definition of what truth is. And you wonder how God is at work. Or maybe you look at your own work, or or your family, or even the church, and you wonder, God, do you even have a purpose or a reason for this? Maybe you're here today, and you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you think, "I, I would never... I would never follow this God that they're talking about. I would never worship this Jesus that they're singing to because if He is God, like they say, He's not any kind of God that I would want to worship because He certainly has not given me the kind of life that I think that I deserve. What about you? Do you ever wonder if God has lost His grip on all of this? It can certainly feel that way in our lives. And yet when we come to the Bible. We should be reminded of one thing from the beginning to the end. No matter how out of sorts or random or confused life looks on the ground, there's one who is ruling over it and has purposes for each and every minute that comes to pass. We've certainly seen this as we have walked through the story of the early church in the book of Acts. Each step of the way we've seen Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose again and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. This Jesus provided and directed each step of the way for his people who he called to give witness to who he was. He has directed their steps and he has given success even in the face of threats of being killed. Last week we even saw how he he took this man... And how he is big enough and powerful enough and loving enough to take this man who was his greatest enemy, Saul from Tarsus, and turn him into his friend. As we'll come to see in the weeks ahead, make him now the greatest asset for the kingdom. But this morning, as our text now turns back to this man, Peter, we might be left wondering what in the world God is doing with these few random acts that are taking place in a... What seems to be a normal, everyday, common ministry. But in the end, it proves to be one of the greatest points for moving forward the gospel kingdom in the whole Bible. To taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to cover part of it today and see the exciting conclusion next week. And as we get into this story, we're going to come away with one truth. One truth that I want us to see clearly in this text. And it's this, that that, that Jesus is indeed in control of our lives. And his intention in directing our lives is singular. He has one purpose. It is to bring those who are far off into his kingdom so that he may be worshipped, praised, and adored above all else. So let's jump into it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 9 again. Acts 9. This time we're going to be picking up in Acts 9.32. 9.32. Now if you don't have a Bible of your own, we've got some there in the pews in front of you. Acts 9.32 can be found on page 863. Once you get there, if you're new to the Bible, just look for that number 32 in the bottom right side of the page. That's where I'll begin reading in a moment. As always, friends, if you're here this morning and you do not own a Bible for yourself... You have come to the right place. We would love to give you a Bible. If you know a friend that needs one as well, we have some Bibles that are free in the foyer. You can grab one on your way out today. Well, friends, I'm going to read Acts nine thirty two through 43 for us this morning. So let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord to us today. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Praise be to God. He may be seated. Now, as we work our way through this passage today, we're going to be picking up here in this one that I've just read, working all the way to ten twenty-three. And, and throughout this passage, it's really marked by four visits, four visits that we see take place. And so, if you want to write these down, they're going to kind of act as our roadmap for our time in the text today. Four visits. The first one we see, we just saw in Acts nine thirty-two through forty-three, and it is a visit to the saints. A visit to the saints. The next one we find in Acts 10, 1 through 8, and that is a visit to the unclean. A visit to the unclean. Third, in Acts 10, 9 through 16, we see a visit to the hungry. A visit to the hungry. And finally, in 10, 17 through 23, we see a visit to the witness. A visit to the saints, to the unclean, to the hungry, and to the witness. And as we look at each of these, my prayer for us as we consider them is that all of us would come away grasping the common everyday ministry God has planned for us. To be people who declare the joy of knowing Jesus to those around us, whoever they are and and wherever we are. All right, let's start then by considering a visit to the saints. And when I say saints here, I just want to be clear I don't mean saints in a Catholic way. as if these are some people who have reached some level of holiness that, that we should pray to them. That's, that's blasphemous. That's not in God's word. That's not what I mean by saints. When I say saints here, I mean those people who have been set apart. That's what saints means. It means set apart, sanctified, holy because of following Jesus Christ. In this section, it focuses on two saints in particular. Look back at verse 32. We see the text trans- back, transition back to Peter. We find that he's going here and there among them all. Well, Who's them all? We find this out from the previous verse in verse 931 where we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was at peace or had peace and was being built up. And so Peter, instead of saying in the city of Jerusalem, is traveling to be with and to build up the Christians in the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. Those Christians who, remember, had been scattered... In fear because of the persecution of Saul. And already we get insight into the desire of Peter during this time. It's this desire for for what we would call discipling. It's a desire to help these Christians grow in their love and their following of Jesus. We see clearly here that the apostles, much like the letters that they're later going to write to these churches, are at work among the people. Seeking to grow their understanding and loving and obeying Jesus. It's a a first priority for them. They don't care just about evangelism, but they also care about discipleship. We know from early in this book that Peter's main way of doing this has been through his teaching ministry. But we see here, we're reminded that it also has a very practical side to it as well. As we keep going, back there in verse 33, we meet this man Aeneas who spent the last eight years being paralyzed. Now, just to give you some context, that's around 3,000 days. Around 3,000 days that he's been bedridden. Yet, Peter shows up, and he is raised in a moment. And he's able to walk immediately. It's supernatural in every way, this healing. It's very similar to what we see Jesus himself doing back in the Gospels. So what is Luke trying to do here in this then? Well, more than anything, he's highlighting the trust that Peter has, not in himself, but in Jesus. You see how Peter knew that Christ had healed Aeneas, and therefore he simply announces it. He doesn't say, Aeneas, I'm going to heal you. He says, you have been healed by Jesus Christ. Stand up. It shows Peter's complete confidence in the Savior. That it wasn't Peter who had raised him, but the power of Peter's Lord and those around him saw, they too recognized that it was the Lord Jesus who had done it. Verse 35 says that when they did, they turned to the Lord. The language that Luke uses here in, in turning is, is the, language, the very language that we use when we talk about conversion. They turned to the Lord. It doesn't mean that they turned around and started praying to Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that they started following some philosophy. No, it means that they turned their very life and love toward Jesus. It means to trust and obey Him and to confess to Him when we don't. To be turned to the Lord means you see Jesus for what He's done and what He continues to do. And because of that, you seek to follow Him. It's the very thing that we're calling you to today if you're here and you're not a Christian. This is what happens to the people in Lida. But Peter's simple ministry here doesn't stop. Look back at verse 36. There we find the story of this woman from a nearby town in Joppa. Now she gets two names here, which doesn't seem like much help to us. Luke tells us her name is Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which translated means what? Right, as if that means anything to us. Well, what Luke's highlighting here is, is real quick, her name is Tabitha, but that's her Aramaic name. Do you remember, Luke's not writing to people who are primarily speaking Aramaic, but they're Greek speakers, specifically Theophilus, one Greek speaker. And so he tells tells the, the, the reader that her name translated is Dorcas, which is the Greek translation of Tabitha. Both the names mean gazelle. Gazelle, evidently she was tall and quick on her feet. Anyway, what we find here is another example of how the book of Acts describes what Jesus was doing at this time. And not prescribing what we should be doing now. Well, Jesus can and certainly does miraculous things still today. This passage doesn't, and nowhere else in the Bible does it tell Christians to go around raising people from the dead. That's, That's not the main focus of this passage. But the main focus here is on who the dead raised is. We see this back in verses 38 and 39 where the people of Joppa come to get Peter. You see that Tabitha is dearly loved for her service. She was a woman full of charity who, when she had died, left a hole in the body of believers there, the disciples, because of her use of her gifting. And it presses us with, with the consideration of our own serving of others. Why exactly are Christians called to serve one another? That is what Tabitha's life presses upon us. Why have you, if you're a follower of Jesus, been given certain talents and certain gifts and certain loves That others do not have. We find the reason in the very tears of these widows. Their sobbing reflects the sadness of losing one who had loved them so well. Who had cared for them so well. Who had used her gifts for the building up of those around her. We are reminded here that our gifts, our talents, and our loves aren't really ours to begin with. They do not begin and end with us, but are gifts given to us through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And we then, as followers of Jesus, are called to use what we've been given for his kingdom and not for ours. And that's exactly what we see Tabitha do so well. Though she had died, we see that her friends have put her body in the upper room, which which admittedly is an unusual thing for them to do. It shows that they had faith and hope that Jesus might even raise her. And in verse 40, the fact that Peter puts them all out, comes and prays over her, shows Peter's continued faith in Jesus to do amazing things as well. And in Tabitha's raising, in some sense, we see a very picture of ourselves being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. As Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 tells us, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is It's the final expectation that Christians should have in the work of Jesus. Not that he would give us physical health and raise us from physical death. But that he can and does, in no less a miraculous way, raise us to spiritual life. But as crazy as it might sound, this is not the culmination of this passage. You see verse 41 and 42 for that. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. See, with, with both Aeneas and Tabitha now, the healings lead to conversions. The turning and believing reminds us why Jesus would continue to do such mighty things among his people. So that Peter could continue to be the witness that Jesus had chosen him to be. Not to what Jesus might do physically, but what he would surely do spiritually to all who come to him. And this is the great joy of being welcomed into the family of God. Not that we would hold out physical healing as a sure thing. That would be a worldly gospel. But that we, as God's people, would hold out life eternal. Life forevermore for those who are spiritually sick. That we would use our talents and our gifts to serve those around us in need of spiritual health. As Hebrews 12 calls us to, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight the path for your feet, that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. At the same time, we also pick up on the thread of the saints that has been running throughout this passage so far. We are reminded by the work of Jesus again that he would bring the Jews who were set apart physically initially to actually be set apart spiritually. They would become saints. Not finally through the sacrifices of the law, but saints made holy, purified, and sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to themselves. And this is perhaps the main thing to see here. Because so far in the book of Acts, the focus has been on Jewish saints for the entire book. But it is about to switch to those who are not very Jewish and those who are not very holy or saintly. We get this initial jolt there in verse 43, where Peter goes to stay with one Simon, a tanner. It's worth noting because Simon the tanner is a Jew, but a tanner. One who takes animal hides and dries them out for clothes or, or tools and as such as a tanner in the Jewish religion he would be considered unclean under the law because of his contact with dead animals and yet Peter is found staying with him which brings us to the second visit, point two, a visit to the unclean. In the text we're now introduced to someone new, look back with me at Acts 10.1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Who's Cornelius? Well, a centurion. Cornelius commands 100 men of an Italian cohort, and we can assume then that he himself is Italian. But he's described here as a God-fearer, right? You see that? What does that mean? Well, God-fearers, as we find in the Bible, were Gentiles who had followed the Jewish religion by praying according to Jewish customs, but who were not a part of the Jewish religion. They were not circumcised. And what's most important here is that though Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing, generous, prayerful man, he was not a Christian. He very much still needed to hear the words by which he would be saved. Acts 11:14. His devotion, we find, was not enough to save him. His commitment to prayer was not enough to save him. His giving of alms to the needy and the poor was not enough to save him. His salvation could only come through the Messiah. So we see in this man something we find true in all of our hearts, don't we? It's this hole that we know must be filled It's this appetite for for something more. It's the longing for something else. That's why our culture is constantly grasping for purpose and identity and joy and pleasure. And it's why Christians in our own lives at times can tend to slip back into the world to give us rest. I mean, if you're here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian, this is something that you at least have to admit. That there's a place in your heart and in your mind That continues to call for more like some kind of black hole and no matter what you pour into it it says I need more. That's what's brought Cornelius to this point to the point of seeking another religion that would have not have been native to him. So what happens look back at verse 3 about the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him Cornelius and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. We find Cornelius here trying to conform to, to the Jewish traditions. He's praying at their afternoon prayer time. And it's, it's here that this angel appears to him. We're reminded, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, that that when an angel appears or or when the Holy Spirit appears, something something exciting is about to happen. The the gospel is about to go forward in some new, exciting way. And the same thing is happening here. Much like the angels that appeared in, in the opening chapter of Luke's first volume, his gospel, the angel speaks for God. And much like those who meet the angel throughout the whole Bible, Cornelius is struck with terror and fear. What's this all about? Well, it's not that Cornelius has now worked himself to God here. It's not that he has come halfway and, and God has come the other half and he, he's prayed enough that God finally says, oh, okay, well, well, I see that you, are, you have some good works and, and you have some wisdom and, and so I'm going to reach out to you now. No, this is not ex- an example of God helping those who help themselves. It's not because Cornelius is a good candidate for the kingdom, as if any of us in our, our natural states are. What we find here is a man who is met with a gracious God who has heard his prayers and who has seen his contrite heart and his kindness and in his sovereignty has a plan for bringing him into the kingdom. Chosen to pour out his mercy on him in Jesus Christ. Now, we might expect the angel himself to to share the good news of Jesus. We might expect the angel to say, Hey, now let me tell you about this guy, Jesus. But that's not at all what happens Instead, God has graciously determined that the privilege of being witnesses to Jesus and the good news of trusting in him is not for angels. But as it was then, it still is today. That the blessing of getting to share the gospel comes to men and women who themselves have been changed by such good news. So in the end, Cornelius' prayers and alms do not save him. God directs him to Peter for that. As Romans ten seventeen reminds us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So how does Cornelius respond? We'll look back at verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Friends, Cornelius has longed. For more. He's longed to know more. He's longed to be more. He's longed to believe more. He has given to himself to the Jewish traditions. He's given that a shot. But he has remained unclean. He has remained outside. He has remained far off. Not just from God's people, but from God Himself. But through this vision, we find Jesus is at work and Cornelius sends these men in hopes that though he is far off, he might be brought near. Which brings us to the third visit of the passage, a visit to the hungry. A visit to the hungry. Look back at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, we shift back to Peter here, who is still at Simon the Tanner's house, and he goes up on the roof around noon to speak with the ascended Christ. He goes up to pray. And it's there that Peter finds himself receiving his very own vision. One that challenges his very understanding of the kingdom. Look back at verse 10 now. And he became hungry, as people do around noon, and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. What's going on here? Right. For those of you who grew up in church, this passage is no longer weird. But for those of you who did not grow up in church, who have not read the Bible very much, I'm guessing this passage hits you like it should hit all of us. Something odd has just happened. Visions tend to be like this. Don't, don't, don't graze over what's going on here. It's, it, it actually takes us a ways back into our Bibles. Where we see God give the law to his people, the Israelites, bringing them out of bondage of Egypt. Out of the bondage of Egypt, he sets them apart. It's one of the central reasons that the law is given to the Jews to separate them from the nations. So God may use them to bring salvation to the earth. And one of the central ways he sets them apart, aside from the sacrificial system, aside from circumcision, aside from their government, is through Food. He gives them prohibitions to the kinds of meat, specifically, that they can eat. It's what we find laid out in Leviticus 11, which is a chapter I encourage you to go back and read this week. Which is why this descending sheet, filled with all of these different kinds of animals, is so odd. Because it holds all the animals that the Jews, including Peter, had been forbidden to take and eat. Which presents Peter with a problem. Look back at verse 13. There came a voice to him. Rise Peter. Kill and eat. Now this is the voice of Christ. If you've got a red letter edition. They do well to put this in red. What is Jesus? What exactly is Jesus trying to teach him? Does this actually have to do with the prohibition of food laws in Leviticus 11? Ultimately no. No. See, during Jesus' earthly ministry, we read about this back in Mark 7, that Jesus does away with these food laws himself. We read there, starting in verse 14 of Mark 7, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And verse 19 says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus would go on to say in that same passage, that is what comes out of the heart of a person that defiles them, that makes them unclean, that makes them impure. And that word, defiled, unclean, impure, in the Greek it's the exact word Peter uses and that God rebukes him over. Peter says in verse 14, look there. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common. That's the word. It could also be translated defiled, unclean, or impure. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Friends, what we often miss about this passage is that word. Common, defiled, unclean. Why is it so important here? Because it's the exact way the Jews described the Gentiles. Peter's vision and Jesus' response are meant to show us one central thing. And it has very little to do with the food issue. It has everything to do with the fact that there are now no second-class citizens and that the kingdom of God is a universal kingdom. This is not primarily a food issue. It is a heart issue. Novelist Flannery O'Connor once said, To the heart of hearing you shout, And to the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And that's what she does in her stories. And it's often, though, what we see Christ doing in our own lives. It's exactly what we see taking place here. That our gentle and gracious Savior knows that Peter, like us, are often hard of hearing and blind to exactly what he's doing. You know, it's no coincidence that verse 16 here tells us that this happened three times. Just like Peter's three denials followed by Christ, three feed, tend my sheep that we had read for us earlier. Jesus tells Peter three times not to call common what God has made clean. This is a startling picture given to Peter to open his eyes to see and to revive his heart to believe that God was moving his redemption to the new frontier. For so long at this point, that Israel had struggled with this doctrine of election, this doctrine of God's free choosing to shower them with love, and they had twisted it into favoritism and pride and self righteousness, even to the point of calling Gentiles dogs. But Jesus, it's pretty clear, is putting a clear ending to this because such ethnic partiality is actually anti gospel. It defames the gospel. The reality of what Jesus is teaching Peter here actually has little to do with the animals on the sheet and more to do with that word common that Peter uses. It's how many of the Jews looked at the Gentiles. And the impossible thing in their minds was that Gentiles would be included in God's kingdom because of their lack of biological blessing and their ignorance of the law of God. And Jesus now is displaying that those once thought of as common, those called defiled, those called unclean, those who are looked down upon, assuming grace upon themselves as Jews. Now those Gentiles, he is cleansing. He is making new. He is making holy. And they too will be his saints. Friends, the implications of this truth are massive. We're going to continue to tease this out specifically more next week. But at its root, this kills any moralism or self-righteousness that may reside in our own hearts today. What Jesus is showing Peter through this vision is something that we all need to learn. And it's this, that what unbelieving world needs is not more law. It does not need more rules. It does not need more regulation to create clean hearts and pure lives. It doesn't need to dismantle the systems and then build some new ones. It doesn't need some hollow wisdom from some hollow people. What the world needs, Jews and Gentiles need, is the grace of Jesus Christ. This kills the moralism that plagues Our expectations for ourselves or for the people around us or for the world at large. The Jews had had gotten it twisted for so long that when they obeyed, then they were loved. Believing that they had missed the core of what God would be doing through Jesus. And now the gospel was expanding. It was time for Peter to have his heart and his mind refreshed with the reality of God's love had always been full of grace. That God had loved his people then and he will love them for all eternity because of his free choice. Because of his redemption won and given to them through Jesus. And we need to know the same today. If you're a parent, just consider how this relates to the way that you relate to your children. The older my children get, I realize that what they don't need is more laws. They don't need me to make things up and set up hoops for them to jump through. What they need is more grace. If as a parent, you've been diligent to teach your children right from wrong and to teach them the ways of God from His Word, the way that you get them now to walk in those ways isn't through browbeating them. It isn't through yelling at them. It isn't through condemning them with harsh words and and angry stares. As parents, the way that we move our children from walking in the ways of this world to walking in the kingdom of God is through showing them grace. It is through our kind and generous spirit. It is through laboring alongside of them, not lording over them to help them see the wonder and the joy that comes from following Jesus. As parents, our job is to show them that walking with the Lord begins by having your heart cleansed by the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. This is what kills the moralism of, I obey, now I'm loved. And helps us understand the gospel of, I obey because I am loved. This is the rich grace of Jesus that we find here. Friends, this is the very heart of the gospel. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit of God must come and awaken our hearts to. That we, like Cornelius, like Peter, Jews and Gentiles, all men and women are by nature defiled. We are broken. We are wretched and without hope of either lasting joy, lasting rest, and lasting fellowship with God. And yet this is exactly what we need. Cornelius recognized that it's clear. My prayer is that if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, whether you're an adult or a child, that you would hear this truth. So we've sung and prayed and read and have explored God's word together, the Holy Spirit would come and awake you to be so aware of that God-sized hole in your heart. That you are separated from him because of your unworthiness, because of your rebellion, because of your sin against him. It's in that place that you begin to have eyes that see the wonder of Jesus. That God wouldn't demand you work your way to some kind of righteousness, but that Christ would come and give you His. That Christ would come for sinners like Peter and like Cornelius and like us. He would come to those who are dirtied by sin. He would come to those who are far off from God. He would come to those who have tried to make their lives into something but see and know it only in a mess. Jesus has come for this reason. To take the filth of our lives upon himself through his arrest and his beating and his mocking and his crucifixion and his death. And as he died to take away our sin in exchange he gives us his purity. He gives us his rightness before God. He gives us his perfection, bringing us back into relationship with a holy and pure and perfect God. He sets us apart. Friend, this is the good news held out for everyone who, like those in Lydda and Joppa we read about before, held out for all of those who would turn to him in faith. Trusting in Jesus and coming to Him. Seeking forgiveness for their sins. That's what it means to follow Jesus in this way. Because when we follow Jesus in this way, it changes everything, doesn't it? It does for us now and it did for Peter back in Acts 10. Not only was he now free to mix and mingle with sinners, but he should even expect to do so for the sake of taking the gospel to them. We see him wrestling with this as we come to the last scene in our passage today, a visit to the witness. Look back at Peter's response to the vision in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. We find Peter here, still on the roof, perplexed perplexed by God's vision to him. Realizing that God didn't fit so well into that box that he had made for God in his own mind. And it's there we begin to see the planning and providence of God work itself out. I want to encourage you just in preparing for next week's sermon, go back and read this text this week. And just take note of the timing of this passage. The timing. And how God is at work each and every step in his sovereignty. It's been building throughout the whole passage. Look back at verse 19. We see again, God is at work even when things are confusing and uncertain. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now, as the, Peter, as the Spirit directs Peter, to welcome these Gentile friends of Cornelius, he is beginning to understand that the barrier between Jew and Gentile has been broken down through the death and resurrection of Christ. And Peter went down, pick twenty-one, to the men and said, "I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason of your coming?" And they said, "Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation." was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. As Peter invites them in, that's where I want to close today. Because it brings everything full circle. It brings everything full circle. What began in this story as Peter's common ministry to the saints... By visiting them and encouraging them, now ends with his saintly ministry to the common, to the defiled, through welcoming them in and showing them hospitality. And you know, that's exactly what that New Testament word of hospitality that we find throughout the epistles actually means the welcoming in of strangers. That's why hospitality is really the heart of biblical evangelism. I think it's wonderful. To share the gospel with complete strangers. It should be about it. But there is something beautiful and glorious and rich in the act of welcoming those complete strangers into your lives. That's what Peter does here in this simple act. To welcome in strangers so that they may be welcomed into the family of God. No longer being strangers, common and unclean. But welcomed in as son and daughters of God. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. Held in the family by the Holy Spirit. Friends, as we consider this truth and even as we prepare to come to the family meal. The table where we remember that we who were once far off have been brought near. This is worth meditating on today. And I'll get you there by asking this question. What preconceived notions about certain types of people make you reluctant to take the gospel to them or to spend time with them? And how much are you, even today, trusting that Jesus has you exactly where he wants you? In the season of life, in the house or apartment you're in, in the work or non work that you're doing, in the friendships? That you're in so that he might use you to build his kingdom that's all we see here that in God's sovereignty and in his planning and providence these men were sent by Cornelius finding Peter at just the right time revealing that is what revealing that what is taking place is the very plan of Jesus himself So that the gospel may go to the Gentiles. Revealing to us that Jesus' desire, as I said in the beginning, above everything else, is to build a kingdom for his name from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what about you? Have you been welcomed in? Have you gone from being common to being a saint of the king? And if so, do you trust him? in the middle of your common, everyday life, that he is work at work. Not building your kingdom or your personal joy, but building a kingdom for himself and expanding your joy in it. If so, we should be spurred on by the words of Charles Spurgeon, who said, To be a soul winner is the happiest thing in the world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven. Here upon earth. May it be so among us. Let us pray. Father we do not presume. Upon your grace. That you have redeemed us. So that we may sit back. And float our way to eternity. But God that you would call us. Out of darkness and into your marvelous light. So that we may. Impart that light to others. God, I pray over these people. I pray specifically for those who have not seen the light of Christ, who have not turned to him as the light of the world, and who are still walking in darkness, that you would give them eyes to see, that that light would shine upon them in this very moment, that your spirit would work in their hearts and give them new life. And God, I pray over your people here, asking God that we may not be those who hide that light under a basket but that, God, we may be about the kingdom in the very places that you have us, however ordinary and mundane they may feel, that you have brought us to this place in this time, that we may be witnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we do pray.